two films, one theme. This is Words and Movies. Well, thank you, Becky, and welcome to yet another edition of Words and Movies. I'm Claude Cole. And I'm Sean Gallagher. And today we're going to be talking about movie adaptations of novels, specifically Nobody's Fool, the 1994 movie with Paul Newman, not to be confused with the Rosanna Arquette, Eric Roberts movie from 1986, or the 2018 Tyler Perry movie with Tiffany Haddish, or for that matter, for the Cinderella song from the 80s. And then the other movie is the Canadian movie, The Sweet Hereafter. Before we get to the movies, one thing I do want to say is we are going to be talking about both of them in detail. So if you haven't seen them, there are going to be spoilers. Yes, press pause right now. We'll wait for you. Okay, ready? Good. Okay, now... Starting in about the mid-90s, I would say, up to about when the video store I used to manage closed, I had a compulsion to read every novel that was going to be made into a movie I was interested in seeing or for the fanzine I was working on that I'd have to write about or thought I'd have to write about. And I'd also try to read short stories, plays, nonfiction books, magazine articles, what have you, that were being turned into movies as well. But the point that I'm getting to is that there's a generalization that goes on when talking about movie versions of novels. And that generalization is the novel is always better. And I find that it's not always true. I mean, yes, there are bad movie versions of novels. I'm unfortunately one of those people who is not crazy about Stanley Kubrick's movie version of The Shining, for example. But there are also a lot of good movies made from novels. And these two are a good example. Not only that, but part of that generalization goes, oh, well, the reason why I didn't like the movie is because they changed so much from the novel. And I think that people forget that when you make a movie version of a novel, there are things you're going to have to make a change to work as a movie. You know, there may be a lot of physical description in a novel, for example, and the camera can take care of that. There may be literary devices that just don't work on film as well. You know, all kinds of reasons why things get changed from going from novel to movie. And if you try to just film the novel instead of doing anything with it, you get something like, say, for me, the first Harry Potter movie, which if you read the book, you saw the movie as far as I'm concerned. And there are a lot of different novels that I could have chosen for this episode, but I chose these two not just because I read them recently and rewatched the movies recently as part of the writing about my favorite movies project I've been doing, but also 
they were both novels were written in the 90s and both movies came out in the 90s and both novels are set in upstate new york although the suite hereafter is set in british columbia and we'll be talking about that a little more when we get to that movie and both movies are made by directors i haven't always been the biggest fan of but more importantly both movie versions of these novels are illustrations on how you can change or compress things when making the movie version of the novel and still turn out and make a good movie. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with Nobody's Fool, and here is the synopsis. So we are in the fictional upstate New York town of North Bath. There is a Bath, New York, but there is no North Bath. Uh, And North Bath is mostly played by the town of Beacon, New York. Uh, Donald Sullivan is played by Paul Newman, and he is a 60-year-old man who emotionally never seems to have quite emerged from adolescence. He is scraping by on part-time work in construction, and basically Sully has built a life around avoiding responsibility. He lives in a rooming house that was owned by his eighth-grade teacher, Mrs. Beryl, and she's played by Jessica Tandy in her final role, Um, and her son Clive, who keeps trying to talk her into kicking him out. His best friend is a mildly retarded handyman named Rub, and He may or may not have a crush on Toby, who's played by Melanie Griffith. Uh, She's half his age, and she's married to Carl, played by Bruce Willis, and that's the guy who sometimes throws work his way. Or it's possible that he's just flirting with Toby just to get under Carl's skin. So one night, uh, Sully runs into his son, Peter, who discovers that he has a grandson he never knew about, too, actually. And uh, Clive is on the verge of a lucrative deal to build an amusement park in North Bath, which, of course, is going to rejuvenate the town in a big way. But the deal unexpectedly falls through when the promoter turns out to be a con man and Clive skips town because he used the bank's resources to help finance the amusement park. So for the first time, Sully finds himself thinking that he ought to start behaving like a grown-up or at least get to know his family before it's too late. Uh, he gets put in jail for punching an overenthusiastic police officer who is played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Sully's luck begins to turn for the better. But that said, I think at the end of the movie, he's not really in a different place from where he started, but he's spiritually richer. Right. Okay. Now, um, before we go any further, I just want to make a slight correction here. Okay. Um, Nobody's Fool was indeed the last movie role that Jessica Tandy filmed. And sadly, she died a couple months before the movie came out, which makes a line that she has in the movie where she's speaking to her dead husband's photograph and saying, I think this is the year God's finally going to lower the boom. All that's more sad, although that's straight from the novel. But she was in a Canadian movie that did come out the following year in the U.S. called Camilla with Bridget Fonda. So technically that was her last movie. Um, So for both of these movies, what I first want to do is illustrate the way the movie differed from the novel and then talk more in detail about the respective movie. Now, For the movie version of Nobody's Fool, just about everything that's in the movie is something that was in the novel, with two major exceptions. The first one is, at the climax of the movie, 
when Sully and a bunch of the other regulars are in the bar playing poker, including Carl, who is with another woman and losing badly for once, and Sully is winning for once, Toby comes in with two plane tickets for her and Sully to go away on a trip to the, a tropical island somewhere. Hawaii. And, yes. And Sully actually makes it as far as the truck. I want to thank you for thinking of me. I, uh, you know, until a while ago, I could have, I could have, but I just found out I'm somebody's grandfather. I'm somebody's father, and, and maybe I'm somebody's friend in the bargain. And she leaves and goes on her own. In the novel, what she actually does is run off with Peter, his Ah. son. And Sully finds out about that. He's sort of okay about it. And then the second major change, because Toby doesn't run off with Peter, is in the bar later... Um, Sully gives Peter a quarter and says, go call your wife, Charlotte, who Peter's been estranged from in the movie. So there's a possibility that they might get back together, whereas in the novel, there's no possibility at all. And then there's a small change as well at the bar scene as well. Will uh, brings the prosthetic leg of uh, Sully's lawyer, Worf, who's played by Gene Sachs, over to Worf. And in the movie, Peter's the one who's watching him. But in the novel, it's actually Peter's stepfather, Ralph, who's watching him. So the moment's the same. It's just the personnel are slightly different. Now, do, and, do, do you get the same callback there? Because that's also the scene where he breaks out the stopwatch again and says, like, here's yes. an opportunity to practice. Yes, you do get that. That is straight from the novel. Mm-hmm. But as I said, there is a lot of stuff that Robert Benton, who's the writer-director of this movie version of Richard Russo's novel, cut out. Um, There's a lot of description of North Bath, which, by the way, is based on the town of Boston Spa in uh, upstate New York, which, of course, the camera, the cinematography was by John Bailey. The camera captures a lot of it. And there are also a couple of characters that get cut completely out of the novel in transition to the movie. For example, in the novel, Sully is having an on-again, off-again affair with a married woman named Ruth, and she's not in the movie, and neither is her daughter, Janie, and her granddaughter, whom Ruth, for a while, tries to insist is Sully's, Janie, that is, 
before finally admitting at the end of the novel that she isn't. And in the movie, what convinces or what gets Clive Jr. to finally maybe convince Sully that he should move out of Miss Beryl's house because he's causing her too much trouble is when he punches out Officer Raymer, the one played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. And that incident is in the novel, but in the novel, what causes Clive to go on the warpath against Sully finally is the fact that Janie's redneck ex-husband shows up at Miss Beryl's place and starts shooting up the neighborhood. And there are also characters who are in the novel who are cut down significantly, like Clive Jr., who's played by Joseph Summer in the movie. He's got a whole backstory involving Sully. We don't get to hear any of that. There's also the diner that Sully and Rub and then later Peter frequent, which is owned by a woman named Cass, who's got a mother played by stage actress Alice Drummond, who's senile. She keeps walking out of the diner. At one point, Sully finds her and uh, brings her back, promising by promising to bring her to see her sister. And their characters are much more significant in the novel, and Sully actually ends up working at the restaurant in the mornings as part of his way of... Uh, keeping it together, but all of that is cut out. And yet, even with all that cut out, I think Robert Benton does capture the essence of the story, which is of this man who hasn't quite grown up, finally learning to take some responsibility. Yeah, I, I, you, know, I, you know, my reaction when I first saw Paul Newman's character, when I first saw Sully, is that that this was going to be kind of a, like, almost like a redemption story. For like, here's this guy, he's kind of a jerk, and he's going to redeem himself somehow. And and so I thought we were going to get one of those, you know, pet the dog moments early in the film. Like, he's not a terrible person, but he's like, like nobody likes him. That's the way it originally started to come off. I was like, he was this like, leave me alone, curmudgeonly kind of guy. And what you start to realize as you build all these little moments through, through the film where he goes and he and he rescues the mother from out in the out in the snowy street and he is you know giving uh, Melanie Griffith's character the, the the pep talks and and being a friend to rub and and so forth and and just all these teeny tiny little actions that he does that has me saying no this is like a generally good guy you know everybody likes him and in their own way everybody's kind of taking care of him the way he's going to take care of other people and maybe that's just the whole small town ethos going on in in this particular film well there's also the fact that and this part although it is cut down from the novel you do get an essence of it um sully came from a horrible childhood his father was an abusive drunk and the reason why he wants nothing to do with the house that uh, Miss Beryl ends up paying the back taxes for at the end is in his own stubborn way, he feels that he's sticking it to his father by not doing anything about 
the property that he seemed to care for the most. Even Carl, who is not the most empathetic person in the world, sees that Sully is really screwed up in his relationship to his father when he gets a look at the house and see how much that Sully has let it go to rot. And pretty much calls him out on his, look, you won. You know, you, you need to do something else now. You move past this. And and, yes. and Sully is still kind of like stuck in that place. Is like, no, I'm not going to do anything with it. It's also, well, for me anyway, it's a good thing to remember that Paul Newman, although he did try to do a lot of different movies and some different kind of roles, the roles that I think that I and maybe most other people would remember him for are either anti-hero roles like in The Hustler or HUD or Cool Hand Luke or what I would call lovable rogue roles where, you know, he'll do something not so quite good, but he pulls it off with such charm that you can't help but like him. Things like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and The Sting. And there's a little bit of both of those in Sully. Yeah. And yet Newman never trades off on that. You know, he plays Sully as a regular character, not as, you know, this icon figure that he's playing off on. That, you know, things like what I feel that Robert De Niro has done so often late in his career, especially when he's doing comedy. You know, he just like, oh, imagine Robert De Niro being funny as a tough guy. And Newman doesn't do any of that. He builds those small moments that you were talking about into a real relatable character. So you can understand why people like him, but you also understand why Peter resents him. And that's kind of what I'm talking about. Like the scenes early on, especially with, with, with him and Toby and, and, you know, he's, he's, He's a remarkably charming character. He's a very charming guy, okay? And so he can say a lot of, you know, let's like kind of outrageous things to people and get away with it because there's there's a little bit of not that not that he isn't serious about it, but but um people write it off as well that's kind of a, you know, sully being sully. So when he starts talking about, you know, you know, the two of us should run away together, you know, and and so you can see where Toby is kind of like the wheels are turning for her. And at the same time, it's like, no, he's not really serious about this, at least not with me. And so it actually is a surprise when at the end she drops the Hawaii tickets in front of him and says, hey, you know, we're ready to go. And there's also a scene uh, later in the film where he is in the bar and um, it's, it's right before he's going to jail. And he says something to the bartender, to Bertie, about like, you know, I... I the condemned man wants, you know, he should get a last request and we should go out back and get naked and see what happens. And, and you know, and she plays back with him, you know, at, at first is like, uh, you know, well, you know, you really want to do this. And he's like, and then finally she says, no, the hell with it. You know, you, you got troubles, you know, like. Uh. Well, actually, the dialogue is. By the way, Margot Martindale plays the bartender and she's wonderful. She's really good. But the. 
actual dialogue is uh, when he says, let's you and I get naked and shark and see what happens. She just looks at him and says, okay. okay yeah. And then, he respo- <laughs> and then he responds, haven't you got any pride? The condemned man gets the last wish, right? I got my truck out back. How about you and me go out there and get ourselves naked and then just see what happens? Okay. Haven't you got any pride? Go to jail, Sully. It's where you belong. Now, that's a great scene, too. And getting back to the scenes with Toby, there is um, a line in one of the early scenes he has with Toby where she says to him, you're a man among men. And he says to her, well, thank you, uh, Toby, and she says it wasn't meant as a compliment. Uh-huh. And then at the very end, when Sully tells her that he can't go off with her, she says again, "You're a man among men." And he says, "Yeah, I know, not a compliment." To which she responds, "No, this time it is a compliment." Yeah, yeah. And it's a wonderful moment. Now, um, as you mentioned in the plot description, North Bath is an economically depressed town. When I was rereading it, I was thinking of, oddly enough, To Kill a Mockingbird. Because when Scout is talking about Makeham at the very beginning, the old Scout, that is, mm-hmm. who in the movie, is narrat- the narration is done by Kim Stanley, she says, Makeham is an old town, but it was a tired old town when I remember it. And I think of North Bath as sort of a tired old town. And there's a lot of description in the novel about how the town is depressed and the movie doesn't really do much of that. But at the same time, um, there's the authenticity of the fact that it was actually shot during the winter time. So all the snow looks (sighs) real. Oh, it is real. It is. So let me tell you, I remember that winter because I had a 200 foot driveway that year and it snowed so badly at one point that I had a snowblower and I would do a pass da, 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 from back to front and I would turn around and it would look like I hadn't done anything at all. It was just snowing so hard. And so as far as I know, there is absolutely no fake snow in that film. Yes. And and there's also a good gag in the movie, by the way, about um, – Sully stealing Carl's snowblower and Carl stealing it back and things like that. But you don't see many people walking around in the streets in the movie. They're all at home. Now, maybe that's because it's cold. And that also could have been for um, technical reasons for Benton, that he didn't have a lot of extras to use. But the fact that you're always seeing deserted streets really gives you the sense of a depressed town. I mean, you do get kind of maybe one or two crowded scenes when Clive Jr. is with Miss Beryl at the Thanksgiving dinner, 
with all of the people he's trying to get to invest in the amusement park. Yeah. And then a couple mornings at the diner, especially the morning when Clive Jr. is there to talk to Sully and Sully is treating him like a waiter, basically. Here, this is Jocko's food. Bring it over to him. But other than that, you don't get a lot of crowd scenes. So whether by design or by just natural recourse, you do get a sense of how depressed the town is. Now that I think about it, you know, a lot of the exteriors, you don't, it's not even that you don't see people out and about. You don't see even cars out and about. Everybody's parked. So cars are mostly moving individually. You know, it, it's, it's not like, you know, they have to wait for another vehicle at a stoplight or anything like that. It, it's, it's like if you see Sully's car or his truck, rather, all you see is Sully's truck. Okay. Any vehicles are, are, are alone on the road. So, you know, again, there's, there's that feeling of, of there just isn't much action going on in this town. And the other thing I kind of noticed, and I'm sure this was just a consequence of the, the, the weather situation, is that every once in a while you would go to like an establishing shot of, of the main street in the town, and there was that banner across the street announcing the, the upcoming uh, amusement park, and the condition of the banner was getting worse and worse throughout the film so that it was almost unreadable the last time you see it. Right. I didn't notice that specifically, but that does point to, uh, that is a good way of indicating decay. Now, to talk about Robert Benton a little bit here, as I said, I'm not the biggest fan of his. He did co-write a movie we are going to try to get to in a future episode, whether it's near future or far future, Bonnie and Clyde. And he wrote and directed one of the great revisionist private eye movies of the 70s, The Late Show with Art Carney and Lily Tomlin. Mm. But the rest of his filmography is not that great for me. You know, he's more of, he gives off the feeling of someone who is more concerned about being careful than in having any spark in his movies, especially when it comes to adapting novels. He did a movie version of Billy Bathgate with Dustin Hoffman and Nicole Kidman. And, that's a tough novel to do, but he didn't get the essence of it. And that's the same thing of uh, Philip Roth's The Human Stain, which also, by the way, had Nicole Kidman in it, along with uh, Anthony Hopkins. And the last movie that he directed was based on a not well-known novel called The Feast of Love. It's sort of like a modern-day Midsummer Night's Dream and you kept wanting it to take off like the play does and the novel did, and it never really took off. But here, for some reason, maybe because the material is more suited to him, maybe because he's got people who are alive and they're acting, no matter what kind of movie they're doing, it all seems to come together. And it's, and it's not even a matter of like where you've got, 
you know, actors who are elevating the material because it, that's not the case. I mean, I think pretty much everybody is is well written, and and he's got a good, you know, a bunch of actors here, and and maybe it's just almost like a synergistic kind of thing. This is like one of those, you know, the the whole becomes greater than the sum of the parts kind of situation. It is is all these very talented people are allowed to play together and and really interact so that you're buying the relationships that everybody has with everybody else in this film. Right. And one of the more important relationships in the movie, of course, aside from Sully and Toby and Sully and Peter and Sully and Will, the grandson, and I'm going to get back to him in a moment is the relationship between Sully and Carl. You know, these are two guys who, you know, act like they can't stand each other, ripping it, ribbing on each other. And Sully, at one point when he was doing a job, loading bricks onto the back of his truck, every time he puts the brick on the back of the truck, he imagines he's throwing Carl out the window. And yet, at the same time, you get the feeling that if either of them were to not show up one day, then the other one would be really disappointed. And that's a tribute not just to Paul Newman, but also to Bruce Willis, who at that time in his career was more known as an action hero you know, with movies like the first two Die Hard movies and The Last Boy Scout. But here he's, even though he's a wise-ass, it's in service of the character. Right. And, you know, I went in kind of cold on this film. And and so, you know, I was was just kind of looking. And, I, you know, Willis does not even appear in the opening credits. It's like that's how shunted to the side he was because he was as you say he was like the action hero character and he's he wasn't in the credits and then i you know i in looking for artwork and so forth to put on the website and you know he's not on the posters he's like he's an invisible guy and at the same time he's pretty central to the story right well i think part of it is the studio didn't want people to think oh if he's in it he it's going to be an action movie even though he'd done a couple of supporting roles in movies where it wasn't an action movie. Like he didn't play a Vietnam vet in Norman Jewison's in country. And although Pulp Fiction, he does get to do a couple of actiony type things. It's not the usual diehard thing. And again, he's only a supporting role in that. Right. And similarly, I mean, he'd already done like a couple of years as David Addison on Moonlighting. And and I could see Carl as an older version of David. Right. Now, um, before we jump back to Will, we you mentioned some of the supporting players, uh, supporting characters, many of whom we've mentioned. But one of my favorites is the judge played by the late, great Philip Bosco. Yeah. Especially in the scene where they're having the hearing about when had Sully had punched out Officer Raymer. 
And Officer Raymer had fired his gun in the air before that happened. And Officer Raymer's superior said, Your Honor, Officer Raymer is currently under suspension. And the judge says, Anesthesia is what he should be under. <laughs> Such a great moment. But getting back to Will, it is. And then the other thing about the, the warning shot. Oh, is it true that you discharged your weapon, officer? Your Honor, it was a warning shot. Mm-hmm. You know who you warned? A little old lady sitting on her commode two blocks away. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, getting back to Will, um, I want to ask your opinion on this because you're the more technical oriented person here okay when um sully is driving away from the thanksgiving dinner that has become a catastrophe at his ex at his ex-wife's house because will's little brother whacker um, Will had uh, put the toilet seat down on Wacker when he was trying to go to the bathroom. On Will, yeah. And Wacker ran out and uh, basically destroyed his grandmother's uh, dinner setup. And Sully was like, you know what? Maybe I should just get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> and Will was hiding out on his, the, back the back of, of Sully's truck. Mm-hmm. And they go out for ice cream. And Will, as he's eating the ice cream, starts telling Sully about his fantasy that they're going to, his mother and dad are going to see what a pain in the rear that Wacker is. And they're going to get back together and everything's going to be better because they'll believe him and not Wacker. And yet, most of the time, you see Sully listening to Will and not Will as he's talking. And I had, unfortunately, he passed away a couple of years ago, but I had a colleague in the fanzine I wrote for who was an editor, uh, Norman Holland. He also edited Heather's, among other things. And he said that that scene drove him crazy because what he was thinking during the scene was, oh, this kid must be a horrible actor that they're not holding it on him, but they keep cutting away to Paul Newman listening to him. Whereas I think the point of the scene is Paul Newman reacting to Will and realizing for the first time that this is an honest-to-goodness grandson that he has, and he better start thinking about him from now on. So what do you think? I, I think it's actually a little bit of both. I, I, we do need to get Newman's reactions during this story because he is he's kind of processing you know, what he's got on his hands here. But at the same time, yeah, frankly, Alexander Goodwin is not a great actor. And, and I, the thing he does best is Big Scared Eyes because uh, he does that a lot in the film. And, and and you'll also notice there are plenty of times where he's not even asked to say something. You know, he, he, he does the face and he nods or shakes his head. So I think, yeah, I, I'd be willing to bet that there was a lot of time in the ADR booth with him, the, the dialogue recording. And, and 
basically that stuff was pasted in in post-production. Okay, fair enough. Now, talking a little bit more about the look of the film, Benton doesn't do really any nor a cinematographer, John Bailey, um, who's an Oscar winner and I think is still the head of the Academy right now. Um, They don't do a lot of flashy things. So when the flashy things come, they count. For example, there's a sequence when Miss Beryl, as uh, Sully calls her, has a stroke and you see snow coming inside the room that she's in to indicate that's a stroke. And I thought that was a really good visual way of illustrating that. Yeah, I like that because I, and at first I thought, you know, did something happen? Not, not necessarily to Ms. Beryl, but, but to, to the house, that the snow is coming in or are we just going to like slowly pull out and reveal that we're on the other side of the window or something else happened and, and you get neither of those. So it winds up being a surprise. And the other thing I knew that there was going to be a funeral somewhere in the movie and I didn't know where. And so frankly, and and I'm sure half the audience thought the same thing, despite whether they knew or not that there was going to be a funeral that oh my God, she's dead and things are really going to take a turn for the worse for him. Well, if you had read the novel, you would have known that it is um, the mother of the diner owner who had died. So to me, that wasn't a big surprise. um, The other visually flashy, well, not really flashy, but um, visually interesting thing that they do is there's another great running gag involving Carl's guard dog, who Sully ends up drugging with some hamburger and some pain pills that his uh, pharmacy friend uh, gives to him for his own bum leg. And... They go there, he and Peter, Sully and Peter, give the meat to the dog so that he'll be comatose by the time they go back to steal Carl's snowblower. And Sully says to Peter, come on, I'll uh, buy you dinner while we wait. And then the scene sort of dissolves, but very subtly so that you know time has passed and then you see Sully and Peter coming back. And I thought that was also a nice little visual flourish. Yeah, neatly done. Neatly done. Although, you know, here's the thing that kind of bugged me about that scene is, is Peter climbs the fence, all right? Sully throws the, the bolt cutters over the fence and then so Peter has to cut the chain and now how are they getting out? Okay. Are they, what, hoisting this thing back over the fence? Or are they just going to use the bolt cutters to, you know, cut whatever's holding the fence shut? In which case, why didn't they use it in the first place? It was just like a little bit of a moment. And, and not only was it like a moment that I had, because I'm usually like pretty quick on that. My wife caught that. And she doesn't usually care about stuff like that. Well, I will admit that's what Hitchcock would call a refrigerator logic question. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that didn't really uh, bother me. 
any uh, final thoughts before we jump over to the next one? I think no, we hit the I, high spots here. I think we did. Why don't we take a quick break and we will be right back. Okay, let's move on. So our second film, why don't you give us the introduction and I will give you the uh, synopsis. Okay, so the next movie is The Sweet Hereafter. It's a Canadian movie directed by Adam O'Goyan that came out in 1997 based on the novel by Russell Banks. And this this film, we should start off saying, it's it's much more non-linear than Nobody's Fool, okay? Um, but here's the basic outline. So we're in the small Canadian town of Sam Dent, uh, and a school bus hits a patch of ice, goes through a barrier, and crashes into a lake and kills a bunch of children who are in the school bus. Uh, the parents are approached by an out-of-town lawyer by the name of Mitchell Stevens. He's played by uh, Ian Holm. Uh, Stevens manages to persuade most of the parents and the bus driver, Dolores Driscoll, to file a class action lawsuit against the town and the bus company for damages, arguing that the accident could be the result of negligence with constructing the barrier or the bus. Um, in the meantime, Stevens is dealing with a dysfunctional relationship that he has with his daughter, Zoe, who is addicted to drugs. And at certain points in the story, we flash forward about two years as he tells the story of that relationship to his seatmate on an airplane ride. The seatmate, uh, coincidentally, is a childhood friend of Zoe's and the daughter of his former law partner. Uh, the case depends on coaching the few surviving witnesses to say the right things in court, uh, particularly Nicole Burnell, who is a 15-year-old paralyzed from the waist down as a result of the accident, and she's played by uh, Sarah Polly. Before the accident, Nicole was an aspiring musician, but also she was being sexually abused by her father, uh, whose name is Sam. So one parent, Billy Ansel, who is played by Bruce Greenwood, distrusts Stevens and he tries to pressure Sam into dropping the case. Uh, Nicole overhears the argument and in the pretrial deposition, she unexpectedly accuses Dolores of speeding and that basically kills the lawsuit. Both Stevens and Nicole's father know she is lying, but they really can't do anything about it. And the film ends with Stevens leaving the airport terminal and he spots Dolores working as an airport bus driver. A couple of things to talk about here mm -hmm. as far as this movie. Well, more than a couple of things, but getting first to the way it changes from the novel. First of all, the novel is based on a true story or inspired by a true story of a real bus crash that happened in Alton, Texas during the 80s. And there are a lot of lawsuits flying in that one. And there were people who felt like Billy Ansel's character does, that the lawsuits basically tore the town apart. Yeah, now, that, that's actually something that, that Billy mentions briefly, um, because what happened was in, in the Texas incident, you had like basically the, the parents – they're, they're, they're not savvy to the, to the legal end of things, and they would find themselves like signing on multiple lawyers to get this lawsuit done. And so now the lawyers are squabbling with each other over who gets the case. And that whole thing got boiled down to like pretty much a single sentence on Billy's part. Right. Now we're going to talk about the way this is very different from the novel. The novel is told in the first person from the major from the points of view of the four major characters Dolores Mitchell Stevens Billy Ansel and Nicole Burnell and 
Although when it's Mitchell Stevens character, there is sort of a flashback to when he's talking about his troubled relationship with his daughter, who, by the way, in the movie is played by Russell Banks's daughter. Uh-huh. And Russell Banks also plays a doctor that um, appears briefly. But it's done in a more linear fashion, which is one of them, as you mentioned, one of the major changes the movie um, makes in adapting it. Now, if you've ever seen another movie by Adam O'Goyan, you will know that this is standard operating procedure for him. You know, most, if not all of his movies are nonlinear. And while there are popular filmmakers out there who have taught us to be able to follow nonlinear plots like Quentin Tarantino and Christopher Nolan, it's still not um, something that a type of storytelling that's used a lot and especially not back then. Right. So Ogoyan is basically um, taking a big leap here in depicting events before the crash and then jumping ahead to after the crash and then jumping back again and trusting that we're able to follow it along. Right. Especially Which, as much as you, think, you only get a couple of hints. Okay. There's, there's one scene early in the film and I think it's, he's in, in, he's in, he's in, in Wendell's and Reese's house uh, in the motel. And as, as right. Ian Holmes' character leaves, Mitchell, you mean Mitchell? Yeah, as as he as he leaves the shot, you can see a calendar on the wall that says it's 1995, and from there you jump almost immediately to a shot that shows like a screen showing that it's 1997. So you know there's a two year gap going on, but that's right. a, that's about the biggest hint that you get throughout as far as what's happening when. Right. Although we should mention that after we get the glimpse of the bus going off, we don't actually see the crash itself. We just see it veering off. And we also see Billy, since Billy is following the bus, he goes from being happy and smiling because he's waving at his kids to looking horrified when he realizes what's going on. And then a little later, we see him reacting as he identifies the bodies of his children. From there, the movie is more or less told in a linear fashion. Yes. There is well, the other, but the, well, the other thing he does see is the bus out on the lake starting to go through the ice. And, right, and but we don't through. actually... We don't, we don't see it get a, down there. Yes. Now, the other main... Well, there's two other major changes here that I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said... All of the novel is told in the first person from the point of view of each chapter. Now, when you think that, you think that with movies, there should be some kind of voiceover. And I don't know about you or anyone else listening. I don't have 
a problem with voiceover. For me, it depends on how well it's used. If it's used well, good. If not, okay, it shouldn't have been there in the first place. Ogoyan decided not to use voiceover here, but he does kind of make a substitute for it um, in the way that you hear Dolores narrating the events of the day of the crash Mm -hmm. when she's giving testimony to Mitchell and then also when she's giving testimony to a judge at a deposition. And then um, Billy, you don't get any narration at all. It all depends on, as I said, the look on his face. And Mitchell Stevens, as you mentioned um, earlier, when he's telling the story of the relationship with his daughter to the friend of his daughter's who's on the plane with him. And the most interesting way he um, substitutes for voiceover, and admittedly this is a literary device, but it works, is when Nicole is babysitting for Billy's kids in a couple flashbacks, she's reading them the story of the Pied Piper of Hamelin, which, if you remember that, ties in very much with what's happening in the movie and is also sort of uh, foreshadowing to what Nicole does at the deposition, telling a lie that will save everybody, metaphorically speaking. And there's also a nice little synergistic moment here. If you ever saw um, Ogoyan's previous film, Exotica, that had, along with some of the other cast members in here, Bruce Greenwood and Sarah Polly, and she was playing his babysitter under very different (laughs) circumstances than in here. Here, it's uh, pretty normal, you know, Nicole, thanks for helping me out. Um, Would you like to have my ex-wife's clothes? Because I'm not going to use them anymore. I'm going to give them a goodwill. You know, everything's pretty normal with them. But it is a nice little synergistic moment. But again, it's a storytelling device of having her telling this uh, old children's story poem, actually, that works. Yeah, it does. And and actually what she does is she, she really underlines some of the stuff that happens in the film uh, during her narration. And, and, you know, at first I thought this might be a little bit heavy handed because and, and, and then I decided not really, because if nothing else, they keep making the reference to the Pied Piper leading the children into like this hole that opens up in the mountain and then closes behind mm-hmm. them. And that's pretty much what happened to the kids in this story. But they don't really draw the A to B line on that is that, well, this is what happened. You had this person. She had the children. She went down to a hole and the kids disappeared into it and left behind, you know, the one who was lame. And, 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 and um, I know also though, that there is the one part of the story, which is not actually in the original poem of the Pied Piper of Hamelin. And it comes during 
um, Nicole's uh, testimony, and and it's the thing about the the look frozen on on the lips when she's looking at her father and telling the lie. Right, that's taken from another poem, I believe. Um, a different one. Let's see. I think it's by um, Robert Browning, something like that. Okay, I knew. I knew it wasn't from. I knew it wasn't from the Pied Piper. Let's talk also about two other changes in the novel, uh, both of them major. Um, one less controversial. In the novel and in the movie, um, Billy goes over to Nicole's parents to try to talk to them, talk them out of being involved in the lawsuit. Uh, because he says, you know, you're good members of the community. If you guys pulled out, then everyone would realize that this shouldn't happen and they'd follow suit. And that's sort of, you get the feeling when the call gets the idea to um, blame the crash on Dolores so that the lawsuit would be torpedoed. But in the novel, Nicole and Billy don't get to look at each other during this. Whereas in the movie, as Billy leaves, he sees Nicole sitting there in the hallway, having listened to it, the conversation the whole time. And I think that works not only as a way of foreshadowing the fact that Nicole's going to make this decision to torpedo the lawsuit, but it also serves as a great emotional moment because Agoyan up to that time was known mostly as an intellectual filmmaker that he'd put together these elaborately crafted puzzle movies that didn't really connect to you on a human level. And I have to admit that from what little I saw of his work up till Sweet Hereafter, it wasn't until Exotica that I felt that it connected to you on a human level. And I think that scene does connect to you on a human level. And I'm glad Agoyan made that change. Yeah, it was a nice moment because, again, you, you kind of expect her to to say something you expect. Okay. Everybody stop or, or something like that. And instead she sits, she listens. You can, you can kind of see the, the, the information kind of percolating in her head and, and Billy, I'm, and, and at the, the very last thing that he says before he leaves is something like tell Nicole, I said hello, or that I asked about her or something like that. And then he starts to leave and he spots her and he still doesn't say anything. They just exchange a look for a moment and then he continues out. So yeah, I could have said something now and I chose not to. Yes. And you know, that's also a nice way of him saying, okay, I know you didn't, Nicole didn't want anyone to know that she was there and he's not going to betray her that way. Yeah. So that's a nice little moment. The other major change is that in the novel, Nicole wants to be a model. In the movie, she's 
a musician. And as a matter of fact, she performs a couple of songs by Canadian artists who, at the time, if you were living in Canada, you'd know them. Uh, one of them is the group The Tragically Hip. She sings a song of theirs called Courage, which plays not only um, when she's singing at the fair, but also, I think, plays over the end credits. And yeah, and, also, and there's also a portion of it which is being sung when her father is carrying her up the stairs to the deposition. That's the tragically hip version, I think, too. Or maybe it's somewhere else. Um, and then she also sings a Jane Sibbery song. Uh, Jane Sibbery, I think, is best known in this country for singing the song It Won't Rain All the Time from The Crow, the movie. And she sings that song, too. And the way Agoyan described it when I um, watched a press conference that's included as an extra on the DVD version I have, it gives you the fact that she that Nicole is a musician and her father's her manager it sort of gives you the illusion when you're first watching it that this ancestral relationship between her and her father um, might be blurring the lines a bit and not, you know, the fact that the father is totally molesting her and taking advantage of her wrongly. And Ogoyan doesn't, really hit you over the head with that. He lets you come to the conclusion that, yes, oh my God, he's molesting her. Yeah, it is not especially clear at first. I mean, because, he, you know, her father's got kind of a young look to him and like, okay, clearly older than she is. But, you know, this could be like the older boyfriend almost when you first see them. You know, she's performing up on the stage and then she comes down and they walk off and then she calls him daddy. And you're like, wait a minute, what happened here? Is this is is she being just kind of like weirdly flirtatious? But if she is, okay, that's a little bit beyond her years because she's only what fourteen. The character. Well, in the novel, she was actually thirteen. Okay, they um, made her fourteen, I think, so that they could um, get away with it. Yeah. Um. So so you had that. Um, but the but the other thing is is also that that was also right after the scene where um, Stevens uh, is is in the uh, he gets stuck in the car wash and his his daughter calls him and she's calling him daddy and she's being really acidly about it you know it's like she she's just like calling him daddy almost to mock him so you hear that parallel all the way through is every time every time his Zoe calls Stevens. She calls him daddy, but it's but it's always with this this just oh it's awful <laughs> you know you hate yes. hear, you hate hearing it and and likewise Nicole calls her father daddy all the way through the film up until the point where she tells the lie in the deposition and then the one time she addresses him after that it's dad yes and I know a couple of reviews I read not only from critics, but also back when I used to um, write reviews on the Internet Movie Database site, 
a couple of people had a problem with Nicole blaming Dolores for the crash. And, you know, that's really missing the point. She is not blaming Dolores for the crash. She is saying that Dolores was responsible for the crash because she knows that's the only way that this lawsuit is going to be torpedoed because she knows that no lawyer in their right mind is going to sue Dolores because she doesn't have a lot of money. She's taking care of a husband who's had a stroke and can barely talk. You know, she's not the deep pockets that everyone is after. Right. Plus, I I think it's it's it, I'm, I can't remember for sure if it's mentioned in the conversation between Billy and Sam that she overhears that that basically any of the money that's been paid out from the insurance by the district is already paid out. It's like that money's gone. It, it does come I do, up. I don't, I just don't remember if she, if she heard that. Yeah. I do want to get back to that scene. One more thing. Sure. Um, Ogoyan does a good job. I think Trent, he was the writer as well as the director, by the way, on this movie, just like Robert Benton was the writer and director on Nobody's Fool. And he does a good job transplanting things from upstate New York to British Columbia. But there's one line that Sam and his or his wife have about Nicole's insurance not paying for all the things that would help take care of her. In New York State, that would mean a lot. Yeah. Because, of course, we don't have universal health care in this country. But in Canada, they do. And I kind of wish that Agoyan had done a little rewrite there to reflect that. As someone who was living in Canada at the time, that didn't catch me when I first saw this. But when I see it now, I kind of wish he had caught that. Now, now does, it, does it bother you that everybody was expressing things in miles per hour instead of kilometers? That I didn't notice as much, but you're right. That is also something that they should have, uh, sh- that Ogoyan should have uh, rewritten. It's, it's kind of interesting, though, and I should have mentioned this earlier, is that, that the book was set in upstate New York because I watched this almost back to back with uh, Nobody's Fool. And so, like, um, Nobody's Fool, I... I recognized Beacon immediately because my daughter went to school in the area. And so I would visit frequently Beacon, Poughkeepsie, New Pulse, that whole zone there. Um, And so watching this film, you know, I I didn't necessarily know that it was Canada. Uh, So again, I'm like, are we in upstate New York again? You know, what's going on? I see mountains and I see this going on. I see that going on. And then there was something my wife had pointed out about there was something going on late at night and it was still kind of light out. And I said, well, maybe maybe we're somewhere in like the northern Midwest, but there aren't any mountains over there. I don't quite understand what's going on. And, and it wasn't really until afterward that I discovered, oh, this is Canadian. Okay. Right. This was made by a Canadian company, Alliance, although it was distributed in the U.S. by Fine Line, uh, which then was a subsidiary of New Line, neither of which exists anymore. But right. 
um, now let's talk a bit more about the small town um, aspects, particularly among the cast. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, Bruce Greenwood and Sarah Polly had both appeared in Exotica. And a lot of, though not all, of the actors in this movie were people Ogoyan had worked with before. Uh, Maury Shaken, who plays Wendell Walker, the owner of the motel, and who um, American audiences might best remember as the guy saying, Mr. Potato Head in War Games. Yeah. And also the guy that Joe Pesci is uh, mocking about magic grits and my cousin Vinny. But he had appeared in a big role in the first Egoyan movie I ever saw, The Adjuster. And he has a blink and you'll miss it part in Exotica. Um, Gabrielle Rose, who plays Dolores, and David Hamblin who plays her um, husband, had also appeared in Exotica. Arsene Kanjian, who is Ogoyan's real-life wife and who played um, the woman whose uh, son is Bear. Um, Wanda. Wanda, yes. Wanda Otto. Yes. Um, she had appeared in The Adjuster and in Exotica. And those movies are urban movies. You know, they're both shot in and set in Toronto. And although Alberta Watson, who uh, plays Risa Walker... Um, had not been in an Algoyan movie, at least not that I'm aware of. She also screams, well, she projects an urban image. She was in the first uh, TV spinoff of La Femme Nikita as uh, the boss. And yet all of these actors are very convincing playing small town people. You don't get the condescension that you sometimes get in uh, big stars uh, deigning to play just plain folks from a small town. You know, they really feel like they live in this community and they're part of this community. They, they absolutely do. And, and, and the other thing is, is this is not, you know, compared to, compared to Nobody's Fool, this is not a a bunch of big name, not that the other film was either really. I mean, there, you know, there were a couple of big people there, but, but for the most part, what you've got is like very well established character actors. Okay. That most people will say, Oh yeah, I remember them from a thing. This guy looks familiar. That, that sort of thing. You weren't necessarily getting it from this film. Yes. There were a few big names there. Ian Holmes, certainly Bruce Greenwood, Sarah Polly had been acting for over 10 years at that point. So she was a known quantity, but most of the others, it was like, I don't think I know who these people are. And and so it's it's kind of interesting when you look at the two together that that you've got these people over here in this film and these people over here in this film and in both cases yeah we are convinced that these are the people 
who they portray. You know, they're, 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 these folks are basically disappearing into their characters. Um, but but you've got directors who are approaching it from rather different standpoints and still getting a good small town result. Right. And um, we should also mention Ian Holm was actually not the first choice for this role. Right. Donald Sutherland was originally going to play it. And then for whatever reason, he dropped out and Holm stepped in. And you really get the sense from his performance that although he is if the lawsuit had happened, was going to be profiting off of people's pain, you get the sense from his performance that he really does believe what he's saying, that he's taking revenge on behalf of the victim's families here. And not only that, but what he doesn't say is that he is doing this because he's not able to save his own daughter. Right. And he, he never he never actually says that. I mean, the only time he, he even hints at it is when he has to answer the phone call while he is encountering uh, Billy while, while, when he was trying to photograph the, the, uh, the bus. And and he just says, this is my daughter. And, and that's about it. And. and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that's the phone call that he takes where she tells him that she has AIDS. I think that's I think that's true too, and uh, where she says, you know, you can't um, you can't ask why I'm calling from now on, which is a pretty damning thing for a child to say to their parents. Right, but 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 that's the other thing is that basically, you know. He's he's not necessarily saying it, but but yes, he's lost his child too. But it's happening yeah. in a different way. And what's what's more, it's 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 almost worse because it's it's happening by degrees. It's like these people, bang, they lost all their kids at once, you know. Mm-hmm. And and he is just dealing with this thing that's it's been a process for years now. And I don't know if it's especially clear at the end, because remember in nineteen ninety seven, you know, AIDS was still pretty much the death sentence. Okay, so by the by the time we get to that point where he's on the plane, it's entirely possible. He doesn't say one way or the other. He might be on his way to bury her now. Right. And um, the other performer I want to talk about a little bit now is Polly. At this Mm -hmm. point in her career, even though she was um, somewhat famous, at least for anyone who watched the TV show, Anne of Green Gables and Anne of Avonlea. At that point, Ramona. Yeah, and Ramona. At that point, though, she was ready to give up acting because um, she had had. um, It was a combination of um, she didn't like the way child actors were treated, and she had gotten more political. Um, at that point in her life. And she actually gives a lot of credit to Agoyan for getting her, not only getting her to do this movie, but also for reigniting her interest in film. 
And even though she's gone on now to be more of a director than an actor, although she does still appear in movies, um, she does now, she is now much more interested in film, although she does keep up the political activism part. But to me, without her performance and the way she's able to change so much during the movie, it wouldn't work as well. And the testimony that she gives at the end wouldn't have as much of an impact. You know, my favorite line of the entire movie is right after her testimony, when she goes back to the seat and Mitchell says to her, you'd make a hell of a poker player kid. And she says, thanks. And because of her performance, that line really hits you. And it also underlines that, that you know, he knows what she's done. And she's kind of acknowledging it. Why? Yeah, nobody, nobody, well, there, there are exactly two people who know why and nobody's going to tell. Um, right. But, but, but the thing is, she knows that he knows, okay? Mm-hmm. And she's going to acknowledge it, but that's all she's going to do. Right. And it's also, although we don't quite get this as much in the movie as it is in the novel, but even though she hates what Mitchell's doing, she actually likes him as a person because he treats her like a real person, not an object of pity. Yeah. All right, so, so I, I have a question for as someone who's read the book, maybe you can answer this, is yes. because it is really not spelled out. Again, there's a there's a hint at something there that you're not quite sure what happened, and and but they don't they don't bring it up at all ever. Is is what happened to Billy's wife? Do do we get that story in the book? There, okay, I. Th- don't remember that, although they do deal a lot more with uh, Billy's character in the novel. Um, in the novel, he's a Vietnam vet, and he owns this gas station where a lot of other Vietnam vets are uh, working at. But a lot of his backstory was cut out of the movie. And I don't remember specifically whether or not what was going on with his wife in the novel, but I'm sure whatever it was in the novel um, doesn't make it into the movie. I know that we have um, the affair still going on between Billy and Risa Walker, but I honestly don't remember the... um, what went on with his wife and the book. Yeah. There was only one thing is, is he makes a reference when he, when he gives Nicole the clothes and he starts to say something about how I was her name, Lydia, how she, she, he starts to say like she outgrew the clothes. Oh, and then he backs off it real quick. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, now I remember she does die in the novel. I think she'd been suffering from uh, cancer or something like that. Okay. So that's why he's giving her the clothes in the first place. Or he's offering Nicole the clothes in the first place. Okay. Yeah, there was just that uh, that peculiar line where he he starts to say she outgrew the clothes and then he backs off it real quick. 
and 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 starts to say something else and you can see like nicole going wait what <laughs> but that's about it right now uh one other scene i want to talk about because i know um another guy who i used to write with in the fanzine thought that this was the most powerful scene in the movie it's the scene where Mitchell is telling his um, his do- Zoe's friend Allison yeah. about Allison about when Zoe was little and she got bitten by uh, spiders or something like that, mm-hmm. and they had to rush her to the hospital, and the doctor who is played by Russell Banks here, the doctor that they uh, bring her to, uh, was telling her him that if she has trouble breathing, that he's going to have to um, give her a tracheotomy, basically. And remember, we're talking about a baby here that he's going to have to do this to. Not only that, but his baby. Right. And there's a shot of the baby Zoe looking up at him or the young Zoe looking up at him while they're in the car that my friend thought was the most powerful shot in the movie. And in the novel and in the telling that Mitchell does, that he sees that as her looking at him with absolute trust, even though she may see, if not quite comprehend, that he's holding a knife in his hand that he might use on her. But the look that the baby gives him, it gives the camera basically, is a lot more ambiguous than that. It is, but but it, this also puts me in mind of, of and I'm going back to like, you know, college class vocabulary here. This is a great example of the Kuleshov effect. Okay. Where you, and, and, and the, the basic thing behind the Kuleshov effect is they would show subjects a neutral picture of a person. And then they would show the people, the, the subject, some other object or like, like a picture of, um, I don't know, like a, a bowl of grapes. And then they would go back to the exact same picture of the person in the neutral expression. And people looking at the second picture, which is the same thing as the first one, would say, oh, he looks hungry. Or they would show the people the, the people a picture of children playing at a playground and go back to that picture. And they would say, oh, he looks happy because he's watching children playing. That kind of thing. And, and it becomes almost like a Rorschach test where you're going to project something onto that baby's face. So he's telling this story, you know, about, and, and I get that where, yes, the baby trusts him and, and that sort of thing. And at the same time, knowing that this is basically his memory and he's got this memory of the baby looking at him while he's literally holding a knife to her throat. And there's, you can also plug in a little bit of uh, accusation maybe, it's it's yes. it's, a, it's because the kid has such a blank expression. You're going to paste whatever you want onto that, depending on where you're coming from as you see that scene. Right. Now, um, one other aspect of the movie I want to talk about um, is Michael Dana's score. 
I think it really evokes the emotion that the complex series of emotions that come out in this movie. It's somewhat dissonant at times. And then at the end, it's not cathartic, maybe, but more healing, I guess, is the word I'm, or term that I'm looking for. Yeah, and it, it's kind of weird because it's 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 very simple stuff. There, there's there's like he's using a lot of old instruments, you know, flutes and recorders, and I don't know, like it, it sounded like maybe even a lute in there. Um, and at first, I I thought because it was very string heavy when you first heard it, and then a little bit of the flute, and I was like, this has almost like kind of an Asian feel to it. And then I I only got that for a few seconds, and then we moved past that, and and into you know, the, the heart of it. And I guess it was really, you got past that. And then there was the scene, um, that took place with, with the band practicing. So maybe because the music changed very suddenly, and then we got back into, um, Dennis score. And, and, and then I realized that it, no, it had a little bit more of a, of a medieval feel to it than I had originally thought it did. And that carried through. And, and I, I have to imagine that, um, it was kind of underlining the, the Pied Piper theme throughout the film. Yes. You know, that sort of occurred to me when you mentioned the medieval part. And in the interest of full disclosure, I have to mention this. Um, I saw this movie in Toronto when I was living in Canada at the time. Um, it had been playing in Toronto for a while, but it had just opened in the U.S., and after I walked out of the theater, stunned by what I had seen, knowing that it was the best thing I had seen that year, who should I run into but Adam McGoyan? Wow, really? And I got to shake his hand and tell him how much I liked the movie. He said, thank you. He asked me how the print was, and I said it was fine. And then he left. How about that? Do we have any other uh, final thoughts on either movie before we uh, wrap this up? No, I think uh, I've, I've pretty much exhausted my notes. Okay. Um, so we should mention that both Nobody's Fool and The Sweet Hereafter are available for streaming on Amazon Prime. Yes. And The Sweet Hereafter is also streaming on the Criterion channel which is a great channel if you haven't visited it yet. And they're also both available to rent on Amazon. And Nobody's Fool is also available to rent as well on YouTube and Google Play. Yeah, also Sweet Hereafter is available on imdb.com. Um, you can see it for free, but there are ads. Okay. So um, our next episode... We mentioned at the beginning that the two of us met because we we're both fans of the West Wing, which was created by Aaron Sorkin. And Mr. Sorkin has a new movie coming out that he wrote and directed yes, called The Trial of the Chicago Seven. Although he's best known, liked, disliked for his TV shows, before that, he well, before any of that, he was a playwright, but he was also a screenwriter. 
and he has his name on eight movies and has also done uncredited work on a few others. And starting with our next episode, we're going to be taking a look at every movie that Sorkin has his name as a credited writer on, and then we'll wrap up with two movies that he did uncredited work on. But we're going to start out with A Few Good Men, which is the first movie he ever wrote, and based on his play, and then The American President, both of which were directed by Rob Reiner. Yes, and just to get out in front of it, if you want to see those before the show airs, okay, um, it is available on Sling and uh, BBC America. If you have a subscription to that channel, you can see it for nothing, or you can um, buy it through most of your video outlets. And did you mention the other film? The American President? Yes, okay. <laughs> um, that is available on uh, Amazon if you have stars, okay, um, but also through DirecTV for certain subscriptions, and it is available for rental or purchase through, again, most of your um, basic outlets. Okay, and you can find me on Facebook, Sean Gallagher, and we have a Facebook page now, Words and Movies Podcast as well. Yes, that's facebook.com slash Words and Movies Pod. Uh, you can also find us on uh, the, the Twitter machine, um, at Words and Movies Pod. And we do have an email too, do we not? Yes, uh, words and movie po- words and movies pod at gmail.com. Geez, aren't we clever? And in the meantime, you can find Sean Gallagher on Facebook under his name. You can find me on Twitter at Claude Call and through my other uh, podcast, How Good It Is, at howgooditis.com because I'm clever too. Okay, so until next time, I hope you enjoy these two movies and we'll be back. Thanks for listening. 